And then George Floyd happened. And, you know, it gets a little bit personal, but as I, I think about myself as a black man in an industry where there are not a lot of them, certainly not with the funds and the size that we have. And I said to myself, wow, I like, I've been deluding myself and I don't know what I've done. I don't care what I've done. If the state of relations in this country is, is this bad, then I'm just not doing enough. Olin Douglas is a name that many have come to recognize in the venture industry, in particular for building the first venture fund for The Motley Fool, a popular news and media platform providing investing insights and financial advice to millions of people for over 25 years. But his story takes an unexpected twist as he walks away from a $250 million outfit he helped start. His abrupt departure left industry insiders, including me, hungry for answers. And today, he's here to reveal in his own words what happened and why, and importantly, we'll chat about his mission to challenge the status quo as a black man in this industry. Join me as we peel back the layers on Olin's journey, his call to action that will leave you re-evaluating everything you thought you knew about VC. So lock in your focus, turn up the volume, and get ready for this week's episode of Billion Dollar Moves. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. Olin Douglas, this is take, take two. <laughs> Olin, I'm so excited to see you and to have this conversation with you at a very interesting time in your life. First of all, how are you, my friend? I am doing well, Sarah. Thank you very much for inviting me back to the program. I really am. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Part of this was because you were going through a little bit of a transition. And we'll talk a little bit about you walking away from a $250 million fund called Motley Fool Ventures, which you were a key man of. But let's take a step back. That's a bit of a hint and a teaser for our audience because it gets really good, guys. But <laughs> Olin is in front of me. Uh, and let's talk about who Olin Douglas is, you know, Olin Frame, who you are, and what brought you to this work. I'm from Baltimore. I was born and, and, and raised at and very much multi-generational Baltimorean and uh, Maryland. Uh, my background is in finance. When I graduated from college, I went to KPMG, one of the large accounting firms, specializing in auditing, um, particularly financial institutions and uh, healthcare industries. And I did some uh, retail and also really foundational in threads that um, kind of continued throughout my career. I've worked in banking uh, and, and various uh components there in financial analysis, all of it in the finance side, whether it was financial analysis of corporation, worked in fair lending, analyzing data there uh, in kind of the portfolio derivatives and hedging departments, uh, risk management. So a real uh, background in banking. I joined the Motley Fool in 2001. So it was very long time ago, 22 years ago. Um, and shortly after, I was probably there for about three years, was promoted to chief financial officer. That's where I spent uh, most of my time at The Fool for about 14 years doing that. And then I was able to launch a venture fund inside of The Motley Fool. That was in 2018, and that was the uh, birth of Motley Fool Ventures. As you mentioned, starting with the lens of auditing uh, and, and finance, you know, thinking about risk, uh, how was that transition for you to to then go into venture where you're taking risk every day. <laughs> well, it was it was, it was extremely helpful, and, and you know, for anyone who can you know work at an accounting firm, it really teaches you how to understand a business from the bottom up and to look at the. I think what I do is I look at the financials of a company and I see a story, and then I listen to the story that the uh, you know at the time the CEO is telling me whatever, and I want to make sure those words and those numbers 
kind of match. And I think that skill set I still use today in in um, in venture capital when we're looking at these early stage companies where the financials are really kind of immature. And that's the other thing I I really learned at, at KPMG and then honed was this ability to almost look at the financial statements as the output of the business process. So then once again, I'm, I'm looking at these early stage companies, listening to what they do, seeing their key metrics, and I'm able to kind of um, decide how well the financial mm. statements actually match the stories. So that's really pretty good. And that's a great way of managing risk. The more consistency there are, the less likely you're going to run into that. So it's venture capital. We can't get rid of all of this. I, I, I'm a foreign accountant. I'm probably pretty high on the risk-taking scale, <laughs> which is probably very low on the scale of normal people. But I have a higher risk tolerance than uh, most and I I and um, I, I enjoy that you know that little bit of the yeah. unknown that kind of comes with it. yeah love that and and so that little bit of unknown uh, for you was creating a venture fund as well can you also give us a sense you know we have a global audience here uh, the Motley Fool of course is very popular in the US and, and increasingly globally it's been around for years now but tell us a little bit of you know about the business model here and then how you took that retail angle into uh, venture they are a financial uh, news and media company they do have an asset management business as well um, but they are primarily what they do is a, is a subscription-based business where they help teach individual investors how to invest. And, and I will say, sir, it was, uh, I enjoyed working there. Uh, it was very exciting. I think for what I learned, you know, as an investor is just as valuable as what I learned uh, from being there and working. It's a it's a, an, an incredible place. And if there's anyone who uh, is interested in learning how to invest in public companies, I still think uh, Motley Fool is a great place to go. But for me, when I started to think about the fund and what we would do, what I realized is that this, these years of the Motley Fool providing uh, investment advice on or investment you know opinions and news on public companies, they they had built a philosophy on how to look at those companies. It was a founder you know first still a bet on a jockey approach. It was strong business models, and I realized that a lot of the fundamentals of how the Motley Fool looked at uh, investing in public companies could be applied to the private markets as well. Um, and I was able to uh, run a pilot program at the Motley Fool. Uh, we had made some private company investments ourselves to to work out that thesis. And it turned out that um, we felt there was an opportunity to take those principles and move them to a larger stage. And in that's, in fact, <laughs> what we did when we launched uh, Motley Fool Ventures, the first one, our very first fund, first time fund manager, we ended up going out and raising $150 million, and we did that almost exclusively from the Motley Fool audience. And so I come out of the gate with $150 million in 800 investors or LPs in the fund. And uh, we're off. And most, I would say most funds have anywhere from who knows. I think that. The sweet spot is probably 30 to 60 or 70 is what a typical fund would have. Some have one. <laughs> the max in yeah. this type, in one type, of, in the most common type of fund, the max is 99. We had a different structure to address that. So coming out with 800 is what I, I believe is from a number of investor standpoint is the largest anyone has ever done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, indeed. And and in fact, uh, you were jumping on this trend long before it became popular. I just had Jenny Fielding on uh, on the show who has 500 LPs, right? Everywhere Ventures, the fun, you know, it, it's a community of founders and they, uh, you know, wanted to back each other and that became the genesis of it. We've also got different structures of uh, public solicitation 
solicitation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where they're using their Twitter following and so on and so forth to get these communities. But of course, you know, you benefited from uh, the platform, mm-hmm. right? Of, of the Motley Fool already building that trust with retail investors. So when you think about doing this very early on, did it take uh, a lot of convincing of the current retail investors to go private? Or was there already what you felt was a great interest and, and pull from your investor base mm-hmm. already to do this? Yeah, no, and you're right. And and those were, like, stepping back, Jesse, those were very conscious decisions to create a different type of fund. We were what's called a 3C7 fund, which allows us to have up to 2,000 investors, but it has more strict requirements for who can get in. And then the general solicitation uh, as well allowed us to market broadly. And both of those things were, some people view them as onerous. They're actually just trade-offs. Like, you have to decide is you're going to exclude some things by doing it, but then you all, you close some doors and open some other doors. And it's really just doing the, um, kind of doing the mental math to understand is the net difference better or worse. And when it came to talking to the individuals, it, it was a message that I think resonated really well with individual investors. We talked about not just uh, getting into the fund, but we recognized that our audience were people who, whether they had, you know, created some sort of wealth in most of it. Most of it, it was not through kind of the private markets. So venture capital was very mm-hmm. opaque. And for some of them, kind of a scary place. And even once you know venture capital, it still can be scary, right? Just to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, well, it still is for those of us in it and, and know it as well. <laughs> it scares me too, you know. <laughs> but so what we did is is thought about what, we, what were we trying to accomplish? And obviously we wanted to, um, you know, make money for our investors. They were entrusting with their with their capital, and that's something that we take very seriously. Uh, but we decided there were there were that wasn't enough to distinguish us because we all want to make money, but we don't. But what else could we make sure that we're bringing to the table for our investors, and particularly for this universe of individual investors? And what we realized is that there were a couple things that we wanted to achieve. First, make them a ton of money. Um, second of all, pull back the curtain on venture capital a little bit so that. Um, it's not so mysterious to them so that the things that they learn could kind of help them to be better investors or either help the people that they know either understand venture capital and be able to use it or even understand the lessons that we're learning about business and they'll be able to apply that. So the goal was we hope that you what you learn, similar to what I said about investing at The Motley Fool, you know, just being an investor, what you learn from being in our fund, you really have to think about what is more valuable, the amount of money you make or the value of the lessons that you learn. And we were very much going to be focused on making sure that we have those honest and frank conversations about how our companies do and and really share the knowledge with it. And then the last one was really aspirational. And you think about creating generational wealth. And and I thought, like, how cool would it be that when you're sitting there, Sarah, talking to your child, talking to your grandchild in that great public company that they invested in, you can sit beside them and say, you know, I invested in them when they were private. So that the great public companies of tomorrow are going to be the great private companies that we're investing in today. Yeah, and, and, and that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh, at the Milken Conference, one of the key highlights on, you know, analyzing the future of the venture markets is that the IPO window is shut. Private companies are staying long, uh, staying private a lot longer than before, right? So this becomes a natural strategy for your investors uh, to do this. Do you think that's part of what helped this trend as well? I think so. I think it's two things. Private companies are staying private longer and it's getting easier to invest in private companies. Again, with the general solicitation, being able to talk uh, much more broadly about it. Before that, you almost had to, you were kind of pre-screened for your net worth kind of indirectly and it was very much a clubby 
type of dynamic where you had to know the right person to get into a deal. But um, I think it's a private company staying private longer, technology increasing, and then still just the big opportunity. The largest public companies in the world, you know, you look at the top 10, I believe it's seven of the top 10 in the U.S. are venture-backed companies. So even though they're staying private longer, there's still a tremendous amount of wealth creation uh, to be had. And venture capital punches above its weight like any other, like no other kind of asset class. I love this point that you brought about the education process here for investors, because longer term, this, in effect, what we're seeing and what we're, we've been talking about here is the democratization of venture capital, which has been a source of wealth, a great source of wealth, particularly in America, that hopefully then carries on to those that don't need to be necessarily accredited in in the old school way or or know the right people and be in part of the clubs. When you think about sort of the similarities, right, sort of looking at public companies and private companies, what were some of your key lessons there on what were the similarities and what were the differences that you were educating your your, uh, sort of group of investors about? I think the most important one is... While we all have portfolios of private stocks, we have portfolio of public stocks. When you're talking about uh, private companies and investing in a fund, you really do have to look at it as a portfolio. Um, and it's going to be the net results that, that get you the outcome that you want. I mean, everybody thinks about it, but we tend to be much more focused on the individual stocks in our in our public company portfolios and the ability to buy and sell whenever you want. But the nature of venture is that you really, you're really giving people money to create a basket for you. And it's really the performance of the basket is where you get your returns. But the lessons are on an individual level. And most of the companies are not going to achieve the financial goals that we expected. And that's, that is normal for, for venture capital. And so helping people to just put their, I would say, heads in the right place, <laughs> you know, as going into that was important. The idea of relationships. If someone decides they want to uh, buy Apple, and they buy Apple. If you want to buy Apple and Microsoft, you don't have to talk to Tim Cook and, 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 and Saji Nutella. You just, you just go buy it and you sell it. You know, whatever you want. And you it's always there for you to buy and the price is always known. And that's a huge, huge difference in the private markets when you're private company investors. First of all, you have to be invited <laughs> to invest in a company. And so there's a, a big relationship part of that. You either have to have contact with a founder or someone who has close relationships with the founder. Um, there's sensitivities around investing in competitors. The time horizon for getting in is limited in the time horizon and for getting out is unknown, <laughs> right? And so it's just, um, it's a different, and then depending on the stage that you invest in, there's a whole different level of analysis and research to come in. We talk about private companies as one huge basket, but there's a tremendous amount of diversity in that. And in fact, if you think about a pre-seed company and a pre-IPO company, they're, they're, it's amazing that they're still in the same category. That pre-IPO company has more, more in common with a public company than it does uh, a pre-seed company. And so you, you look at those completely differently, different return expectations. Yeah. And and I love this because, you know, we do have uh, quite a group of LPs that tune in here. How would you speak to an LP who's thinking about diversifying, about broadening mm-hmm. and increasing the allocation into venture and how, you know, you said there's the right way to think about it. What is the right way to think about venture as an asset class? Um, that is interesting. And it give you the same answer I give to retail investors, but it, it, the application is a little bit for institutional. There's this asset class class called, called venture capital, that again, you look at that market cap, this little tiny asset class is effectively driving the, the business economy of the United States. 
you know, the biggest economy in the world. And you can't not be in that, right? You definitely want to participate in the machine that's creating, you know, wealth for everyone through the businesses themselves, through the products, the services. They're, they're leading the charge into the future, and you, you kind of have to be a part of that. So how do you do it? The way I look at particularly managing risk in this environment is think about your portfolio, think about where you don't have that exposure. And if you see that there is uh, just even conceptual appetite for venture, right size the bet is what I do. I want to experiment in an asset class with enough money that if it's successful, it makes a difference, right? You know, that you actually move some sort of needle for you. And I think for most people who are unfamiliar with venture capital, that feels like somewhere around that, anywhere from that three to maybe even up to 10%, depending. Again, it, it ranges of it. You know, people who are all into venture can go up to 30, 40% in, in, in that. But those are folks who are much more experienced. But think about that, just a rough number. Could you put anywhere from, like I said, three to 5%? into venture just to kind of experience it. And there's nothing like, there's no, there's no substitute for actually being an LP because there's, you know, significant amount of information that's shared internally that's not shared externally. You can't watch it from the outside the stadium. You gotta, you gotta buy a ticket and get into, (laughs) and get into the arena to experience the game. It's kind of like the acting career. There's a small number of people who are at the top of the pyramid that everyone knows about, but it's a really big industry and that is always, 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 uh, there's someone at the very early levels that's going to be that superstar tomorrow. Um, And if you wait into their superstar, it's kind of like trying to get Taylor Swift tickets now. I mean, it's much, it's much easier if you were, if if you were friends with her back in high school, (laughs) if you're standing in line, you know, and being there in the right five minutes when it opens up, you just can't, you just can't get there. Right. So um, you, you go in there, there are plenty of, uh, of people out there, like yourself, Sarah, who can help the institutional LPs, help, help direct those institutional LPs to the right fund for them. But for the most part, getting just like investing in public companies, the most important thing is getting started. You know, your, your first investment, you know, again, it's going to be a, a big education, helps to validate that you do have an appetite for this or not. And it's going to be the one that sets you on the on the path, and that path is where the where you really get the long sustainable the sustainable long term returns. Absolutely, and and one of the things that uh, you and I connected on was also the fact that within venture is an opportunity to invest into your best vision of the future, yes. uh, of which diversity is part of our shared vision of, of a good future together, right? Tell us a little bit about the opportunity that you see with underrepresented founders and funders here and how, you know, you had used Motley Fool Ventures uh, to be able to execute on this grand vision together. Thanks for that, Sarah. And within the fund, we talk about um, geographic and demographic uh, diversity and investing inside and outside the norms. There's a gentleman, uh, Mitch Kapoor, and he has a quote that is backed by some uh, research on patents, but I think it's just like, genius is evenly distributed across zip codes, but access and opportunity are not. And it's this idea that there are a lot of great ideas and great founders that are outside of kind of the epicenters of Silicon Valley, 
New York City, Boston, and you know they they're out there and they don't have the same access to capital or even the infrastructure that 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 people inside those inside the big three do. And what we found is that if we're willing to take a little bit more time, because they are in fact harder to find, but investing in women, investing in uh, founders, basically both inside and outside. So for us, it's a very inclusive approach. The idea is not to necessarily exclude anyone, but to make sure that everyone has an opportunity. And we've found a lot of success in investing in uh, women-led funds and companies or, or co-led and in underrepresented founders, black and brown and others. So I was talking to another investor. They talked about the kind of a two-by-two matrix. You know, you succeed and you or you fail and it's with a consensus decision and it's a non-consistent decision. And really, it's just about success. <laughs> you know, you want to keep you for mm. success. And what that means, there's a lot of competition to find success where everyone else is looking. There's much less competition trying to find success where no one else is looking. Yeah. So so talk to us a little bit about the thesis here. I mean, you started with $150 million, uh, straight out of the gate, which not many emerging managers, right? Fund one, fund two, fund three, have that uh, great privilege too. But you've had the backing of a great brand, a great platform. You decided to sort of invest in a hybrid approach, a little bit of funds and a little bit into directs. Talk to us a little bit about the strategy here, how you were thinking about portfolio construction and why a hybrid approach. Uh, yeah, so that hybrid approach wasn't intentional or and it wasn't it wasn't even part of the you know the plans, the secondary plans when we launched the fund. We we just wanted to go in there. We were committed to said, inclusion geographically and demographically, but that was the end of it. And we were serious about that. And then George Floyd happened. And, you know, it gets a little bit personal, but as I, I think about myself as a black man in an industry where there are not a lot of them, certainly not with the funds and the size that we have. And even, you know, throughout my career, I've often been, been in rooms where there's not a lot of representation of uh, black people. And I know that my goal before George Floyd was, look, I just want to lead my life a certain way, be a positive um, role model. Not that I wanted to be a role model, but when you stand out, you are whether you want to be or not. And so it's just kind of acknowledging, it's more of an acknowledgement of the reality than, than some aspirations. Hope that if I could conduct my life in a certain way, as I ran into populations and then people were confronted with stereotypes, they would say, well, you know, well, I know Olin, he's not like that. So maybe everyone's not like that. And so in some small way, I thought that by doing that, I could at least be a, a small contributor to a larger dynamic. Then you come home <laughs> in May of 2020 and you turn on the TV and you see a, a, a black man that could be a relative, that could be someone you knew that, that seemed kind of very familiar being murdered on the six o'clock news. And I came home from walking around in, from COVID in the mass when we all had too much time to think. And honest, and I said to myself, wow, I like, I've been deluding myself and I don't know what I've done. I don't care what I've done. If the state of relations in this country is is this bad, then I'm just not doing enough. I have to do more. I have to, it has to be less passive. It has to be um, more intentional and it has to be more. I went back <laughs> to the Motley Fool and, and just kind of looked at our records and our documents, you know, revisit those and, and realize that within the fund, we had a provision that allowed us to invest kind of up to 10% of that fund into other funds or other other kind of vehicles. And we gloss over it. You know, there were a lot of challenges in raising the fund. And um, being very new to the industry, I just, I didn't realize that everyone was struggling. And obviously our outcome was great. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. But I thought it was just me because you, re you read Crunch Basin, it's, it's just success story after success story, right? And when you don't know, exactly. you don't know yeah. anyone, I'm like, mm -hmm. billion dollar fund, <laughs> unicorns every day. That's right. Like, yeah. I, yeah, like, I was like, I, and 
getting to know people in the industry, I realized that there's some really smart people out there. There's some really talented folks. Folks are doing great work that are struggling even more to raise raise their fund than, than I was. And I just, it just didn't make sense to me. And I started thinking about that. And they, a lot of them have been so helpful in helping me get up the learning curve in venture. And I said, well, I don't want to wait until fund nine to then start to figure out ways to kind of help other ones. I was like, I'm in fund one. They're in fund one. I've been fortunate. I've been blessed with what I have. What can I do to help them now? And so we decided mm-hmm. to take 5% of our fund, create a cohort. I would kind of invest in a cohort of other funds that are either were led by black and brown founders or had investment or led by anyone, but had an investment thesis focused on helping the underserved, right? And again, it's really it's more about getting money into the hands of people who are likely to improve the overall kind of um, equity in the system. And so we had to, um, I was very nervous about that and had to kind of, you know, talk with the team to see if they were on board. Um, They did a tremendous job of helping me to kind of get the right tone of the message. (laughs) And and the company, the Motley Pool, was very supportive. And so that that led us to launch it. We ended up investing in 13 funds. And even within those funds, we were very sensitive to geographic and uh, demographic diversity, um, even within that fund. And so we have a very good mix of women founders, founders inside and outside the, you know, the epicenters of venture capital. And Olin, I I mean, I love how you share this, you know, this journey of identity Mm -hmm. is one that has come up in so many ways with my conversations on Billion Dollar Moves, actually. I think, you know, for people to make that change, a lot of it comes from connecting the personal and the professional. I had, you know, Eric Toda from Meta, who only recently came to his identity of really voicing out against Asian hate, because he thought similarly, like you in this country, if not me, if not now, then who and when. But it took a journey. And I wondered, you know, in Eric's, in my conversation with Eric Toda, he actually said in his earlier years, he had avoided this identification as an Asian American because he was more than that. Did you feel that about yourself? Like, you, you know, because you were like me, like many on the show, you know, unexpected leaders first and only many rooms that you did not necessarily want to be seen mm. as your racial identity. Is there some part of that? Yeah, it was a, it was a little bit, different for me in the sense that uh, I'm a tall person, right? <laughs> and I stand out in the room <laughs> and my racial identity is obvious. The only question that people have about the first impression of me, am I American or am I African, right? <laughs> but in, in the sense, and obviously we're all African in the sense, but in the sense of that kind of conversation. So for me, a lot of that journey for me is a very long time ago, even probably as a kid, just I am what I am. I'm, this is my, my racial identity is the starting point for 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 yeah. many people right and so I had gotten comfortable with that part um, but I just hadn't I just wasn't like you said comfortable with what it means to really raise your hand and, and put that stake in the ground that you want to be uh, part of solving a problem and I think for me part of that was twofold one is being comfortable with the role that I wanted to play in, in kind of promoting racial equity, but also being comfortable that there is no one way to do it. And everyone has to do a little bit of soul searching to find out how they fit into the big puzzle of what we need to do to affect change. And 
and, and for me, it's important. One of the things my pet peeves about DIA efforts is often you run into this situation where people want change as long as they don't have to change anything about what they do, right? Mm. <laughs> and, I, yes. uh, and I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, be my pet peeve, you know? <laughs> and I so seeing mm. something and saying, look, I don't like this and, and I need to go and, and make a change. And it's a change that may be uncomfortable, but I know that I'm doing it for the right reasons. I know that it's aligned and it's, I know that it's, it's part of what I want. And so what I would say to folks out there is think about this is that if you really want, you know, we have a system in place today that is creating a certain result. I don't know if anyone knows with 100% certainty all the little pieces that are coming together to make that, to make the situation what it is, but it's not going to change unless we are open to evaluating all the little pieces that make up the structure today, because in totality, all the problems are embedded in there. We just kind of have to find them. And so think about what you're willing to change. What is it about your criteria to select founders or evaluate them that as you really ask your question, yourself the tough question, why is this here? And is it in this day and age as important as it was, you know, when someone taught me this 20 years ago? You know, <laughs> is it possible that the world has changed in a way where those things are not as important now as they are then? Are there other ways to get to the same answer that aren't as exclusionary? We spend a lot of time, spend a lot of time in the fun talking about that idea of what we call double click. How can we double click on the common uh, measures of evaluating founders and opportunities? Yeah. So, so Olin, what is broken about the venture capital ecosystem today? I mean, what needs to change? Yeah, I, I have not figured that answer out in totality, but I do know or believe strongly that venture capital is a relationship business, right? And I don't know, if you think about what at the core of venture capital, all the way at the core, there is a founder with an idea and a selling part of, of their company to someone who is likely a stranger. <laughs> um, I don't know how you ever take relationship out of that equation in order, in order for that to happen, right? I suspect that the, the, the idea that there's a, real, a relationship-driven transaction at the end is, is really important. It's not going to completely go away. That said, we have to really think about what it means, how we define our network and what it and what it means to the weight that we put on someone coming to us through our network is something that we we need to revisit. Um, how do we broaden our networks? How do we expand them? How do we create situations where um, we are leveling the playing field and acknowledging what are those criteria that we use that are that are more valuable than others and, and less valuable? And, and it's really a, a process of changing. Like a perfect example for us is venture capital is um, kind of extremely overweighted in uh, people that come from a small number of schools, you know, and let's just say, you know, it should be used like Ivy League school, for example. And that has come to be a marker for success. When we look at that, first of all, it's an idea of congratulations. It takes a lot of work to, to get that. And, and having that Ivy League background probably comes with networks and, and other things that are helpful to you. We What we don't do is assume the inverse, which is if you're not, then you can't. And so what we look for are who are the people who have demonstrated a pattern of success throughout their life and are a little less focused on how that pattern of success 
manifested stuff. I mean, when you see it, you see it. Someone comes to you and says, yes, I did not go to college. I started my first business at 12 and <laughs> and I did this and I did that and I did that. And you're like, wow, this person is amazing, right? And, and you realize that just by, ultimately our goal is to find amazing people. And the more your goal, because I want to find amazing people who followed this specific path, the more you're going to run into challenges with um, uh, diversity and inclusion because just the nature of of most people's paths, even mine, it's a non-standard path. And if you're looking for non-standard people that follow a traditional path, you're just creating such a narrow window for people to pass through that you're just not going to be successful. Absolutely. And, and one of the um, sort of pushbacks that people come to me and I'm sure mm -hmm. you as well with uh, this thesis of underrepresented founders and funders is that that can't just be it, right? Are they, are there enough people? Are there, <laughs> is there enough pipeline? Um, yes, there are, there are plenty of people there. I had a, a conversation with uh, someone who, who on name and they mentioned that, you know, it's interesting. Well, you know, congratulations on what you've done. It's just weird uh, because like, you know, I'm, I'm, I have like, I have like over a thousand connections in, in, in LinkedIn and we looked up and like, we don't know we don't know anyone and, and are you in the right places, you know, <laughs> to, to, to get to get uh, noticed. And I said to him, well, yeah, I did the same that you did. And I noticed that I have, you know, over a thousand connections. You're not in any of my places either. So like, who is it that has to go to the other one? It's like, I'm sitting here in front of you, <laughs> you know, so I, I can demonstrate that I'm trying to get out of my network to meet new people, are you doing the same thing? Uh, and that's the question. So the, I would say the people are out there. It's really a question of your network and the circles and what are you doing to expand your network um, to reach these opportunities and these people? Um, and what I do tell folks is that it's, it's really critically important because as women and people of color are getting noticed a little bit more, a little bit more attention, this is when relationships are being built. And the person who doesn't take the time today to build those relationships are going to find themselves on the outside looking in tomorrow when these things change. So now, now is the time to get in the game if you want to be in the game five years from now. <laughs> Tell us a little bit of your success stories, the exits that you've mm -hmm. had in your uh, portfolio and how you thought about this. Sure. Yeah. You, you mentioned Rana before. She, we invested in her company. Uh, she came to us. It was interesting through an LP that was also a Motley Fool subscriber. And that subscriber bumped into Rana in an airport. <laughs> and they started having a Love conversation, it. you know, random, and they're talking. And she mentioned what she was doing, and he said, hey, I'm in the fun. I'm like, fool, this sounds a lot like what they're looking for. And um, we kind of got connected, so just kind of, a, and then we met and just kind of hit it off uh, right away. She's an amazing person, and we were very happy to be able to um, invest yeah. in that. So so Olin, if I may just double-click on this one to use your words here. You know, I, I remember very clearly the words that Rana said in, in her challenges uh, fundraising, right? You know, long, long before uh, in the early days, two women co-founders, she was clearly Muslim. She was wearing a hijab at that point in time, talking about emotion in AI, you know, things that people don't want to talk about. And of course, they came from academia as well, right? MIT. So to many, they were flagged as this is not a pattern for success that we've seen in the past. And yet they've proven to be successful for you as an investor. What did you see differently and why did you write that check eventually? It's interesting because we saw the same data, but came to a different 
conclusion. We saw the MIT background in, you know, while some people thought academia, we thought subject matter expertise and in the MIT uh, media labs, where they came from, where their focus was. So this is someone who had um, training and background that was highly relevant. Um, Rana, if you talk to her, I mean, I don't know how anyone could have a conversation with her and not come away knowing that, you know, she knows her stuff. And then for us with emotion or AI, um, we liked that they were very principled in what they do and trying to create this environment where this all of this technology that we're building is being used for good. We loved that as she was building her database of faces, uh, that she was very, very intentional about that being an international database in that having many people represented in her data. She was clearly very interested in privacy. And so for us, she was a model of responsible technology and invention. Mm. Um, in fact, Affectiva, which is her company, probably was on the edge of our thesis. And so you know, we, we invest in, we're investing in tech-enabled tech companies. Um, they were probably a little bit pre-commercialization for us, but we would so loved what Rana was doing, how she was thinking about the problem, which she thought was unique and novel and how she was approaching it in a different way. So the things that other people saw that were potentially deterrents were actually positives for us because we were double-clicking on those to, to see what they mean. Yeah, and it, it's a matter of, of uh, change of perspective, right? A different paradigm. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we're hoping to do here in Billion Dollar Moves to show that different paradigms are possible. So when you think about uh, sort of your success stories within your portfolio companies, uh, what do you think stands out? You know, Rana, you, you talked about her mm -hmm. subject matter expertise, uh, her drive and, and so much of that. What, what else, when you look at your uh, portfolio companies, what makes a successful founder really make it, especially in this challenging environment? Yeah, I, I think it's, it does start with the founder, especially investing in the early stage. Uh, someone who, there's, there's something about them that really makes them the right person for the problem they're trying to solve. There's another company called Isuzu that we're invested in, where the background of the founders is complementary to what they do, but but really they're in it because of, of lived experiences and their passion for um, how to financial equity. But again, it starts with the founder that when I talk to them, it should be clear that they that they know more about um, you know their product or what they're doing than I do. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. they should be the expert in the room. So we really we definitely look for that someone who's passionate. And also, it's really important that they're being driven where the beneficiaries are clearly meant to be more than themselves. And um, that shows up. Everyone can, most people, not everyone, <laughs> many people can nail that in their pitch. But what's much harder is as we do our due diligence, um, it's really the type of mindset that shows up in every aspect of the, of the process. So those people who are, are really focused on a big problem that solves issues for everyone and they're more a, you know, they're, they're leading the, the cause, but it's not about them. Those are the founders that we find are, are very successful as well because those are the people that pe other people want to help. And so you helped uh, Motley Fool mm -hmm. grow a venture firm mm -hmm. and now have unexpectedly taken a different turn by leaving 250 million fund. What happened there, Olin? Yeah, well, we, we, we closed the first fund for 150 million and... Um, in 2018, we had a first close of Fund 2, which had a target of $300 million. We had a first close out of $100 million. So that $150 and $100 is a $250 million. And we were in the process of um, kind of continuing to raise for the second fund. We had long-term plans, or at least I had, I had long-term plans that you know, were fairly consistent that the first fund was going to be 
fully um, retail, the second fund, half institution, half retail, third fund, mostly retail. So the Motley Fool is a retail brand. Uh, they've had a lot of success for a lot of years focusing on that. We've, we've dabbled, dabbled in um, institutions over the year, but kind of, I think, a little bit born out of you know, the environment that we're in now where all companies want to focus on their core and, and what what's best, you know, where they can double down and get the highest leverage, uh, made the decision that across their their properties, which includes the venture fund, which is owned by the Mountain Fool, and they have other asset management properties, but they decided they wanted to focus on their core, which is the retail investor. And I will say this, as a shareholder of the kind of big Motley Fool, I don't, I don't know if I disagree with the decision. I think it makes sense. I feel like it's, it's within the range of latitude that a CEO should have at, at the worst case scenario. Uh, and so the decision to just kind of focus on retail, I understood why I've been close enough to, to know that the efforts that have been made in the past on the institutional side, we were having a little bit different of an experience in the venture fund. But at the end of the day, the company has to... Um, do what they think is best for the overall corporation. And sometimes those decisions that are in the best interest of the overall corporation are really painful for some small corners of, of that of that corporation. And in this case, the venture fund was one small corner. And this was devastating for us. I mean, it's, in, it's hard to raise a retail-only venture fund, really, I guess, to the size and scale and have the impact that I had envisioned for the fund. So it kind of left us in a position where, you know, doing what's right for most doesn't mean doing what's right for everyone. And for us, I think there is a way for the venture fund to still be successful under that new mandate. And, you know, they should pursue that. But I was then no longer the right person to run that operation because uh, I just had a different plan. My plan was, you know, different from the beginning. Wow. So you decided this was not for you. Uh, so, Olin, I mean, this is, I, and we were talking earlier about this, this is not unlike my own experience years ago, a chapter ago with, uh, you know, a public listed company where it was no longer core activities, right? Uh, and this is, you know, a normal experience, especially during market crunches like this. What would you say, you know, taking a step back now that you've had a little bit of time to think about this, what is the right approach for larger institutions or corporates to actually build a venture fund? Do they, or, or build venture activities? Does it have to be independent, uh, out of the balance sheet? How should we be thinking about this as management? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, Sarah. Just the whole corporate VC dynamic. And for us, we were really pushing to be a different kind of corporate VC and some of the traditional issues that corporate VCs have, we were aware of them and we addressed them. You know, we had external funding, we had full-time employees, we had we were financial returns focused, we were able to set out strategy, the decisions were internal to the fund. So all those things uh, worked for us and we had the the advantage of being associated with a corporation which helped us on the brand side and in all other ways. So we really thought that we had solved the issue, but corporations still were a little bit nervous about working with Motley Fool. I mean, like LPs, institutional LPs were still a little bit nervous about working with Motley Fool Ventures because they recognized that there were a few important things that were not obvious that were still critical. And it really is the dynamic we're talking about where at the end of the day, the corporation decides the fate of the fund, right? And that was something that helped me in that decision is because there were 
pressures really from both sides. Corp, you know, institutional LPs saying the corporate VC structure makes me a little bit nervous. And then the corporation saying that, you know, the institutions, they make me a little bit nervous. And, and they both are seeing the same things just from the opposite side. I don't know the real answers. I think about it. It's almost as if I was almost going to say we just, it's almost like this racial identity kind of conversation we're having before it. Mm-hmm. Everyone has to get comfortable, you know, to some degree in their own skin. Um, and then operate from there and recognize that, you know, as you make certain decisions, you create certain structures, you're just going to um, put limitations around yourself. And then I think in that sense, I would applaud Motley Fool Ventures. I think they've kind of created a an ecosystem and an approach that might be sustainable and it probably probably has as good a chance as, as any kind of corporate VC of, of of being sustained but it's just going to focus on a different people it's going to play a different role I, I wish I had an answer and I think you know part of that is why the as we separate we're, we're both going our own directions but there's no there's no animosity so what's next for you Olin <laughs> <laughs> well, after 22 years at the pool, I, I thought it was important to take some time before I really firmly commit to anything. My long-term goal and the thing I'm exploring is, you know, even launching a fund or joining another organization that is ready to kind of continue um, the work of investing in underrepresented founders, but at that next level of funding where I don't see a lot of uh, people there, and that's in that 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 250 to 500 million dollar range of funds. There's some in that area. Uh, there are very few that are run by underrepresented founders, or even fewer who do that with an explicit focus on supporting underrepresented populations. Very exciting, Olin. Yes. And we, we will be staying tuned with bated breath. And of course, you know, uh, you, you're in my pipeline here. Don't, yes. So don't forget me in all those <laughs> opportunities. Um, but let's get to billion dollar questions. And because this is fresh, uh, I want to ask you something pretty personal, mm-hmm. which is in all that kerfuffle, maybe we shouldn't call it kerfuffle, all that sure. transition, what was your biggest learning in that transition with unexpectedly leaving? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, and I like kerfuffles. That's <laughs> 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 a word. It's just awesome. <laughs> I think for me, it's interesting. It's one of those things that was a kind of a blessing and a curse. I think that I had so much autonomy and so much support in kind of launching and, and running the fund that I kind of lost sight of its role in the bigger picture, you know? And so like I can, I, I rationalize it now, but just not staying in tune to how the venture fund fit into the to the overall. So, so like the, the fund was everything to me, right? You know, <laughs> it's a, but it's a small part of, of the Motley Fool. And, you know, having it be everything to me in many ways helped it to have the support it was because people knew that I really cared about it. There was a lot of kind of cultural alignment. So um, it was really great. But at the end of the day, I just didn't really keep sight of, of, of the fact of that, you know, the primary goal for the fun was, you know, playing a role in the master plan of the entire company, right? And so that that led to what should have been obvious being a bit of a surprise, you know. So what keeps you up at night still? I think, yeah, I think I think what keeps me up at night, quite honestly, is kind of the future of underrepresented entrepreneurs and where they're going to get funding from today. When they're ready for that next level of check, that $5 million, $10 million check, you know, $15 million check. What keeps me up at night is where they're going to get that money from today. 
where they're going to get that money from next year. You know, like there's a short term, there's a there's a whole pipeline of great founders that have benefited from a lot of work in the early stages of investment that are going to be ready for that next level. And there's, unless we believe that the, the, the barriers to underrepresented founders that we're seeing in the earliest of stages um, is the only stage where that exists. And once you get to a series A or B, all of those problems magically disappear. If you believe that, then there's no problem and all's good. If you don't believe that and you think that these problems are throughout the, the industry, then we have a, it's like we have a giant hole. I talk about the ideas. It's almost as if when you think about, you know, these, this group of founders, we're building a bunch of elementary schools and there are no middle schools. And, but kids are about to start graduating. And like, what happens to them, right? <laughs> and um, so, th- well, it's the value of debt that we see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, it's real. So that's that's kind of um, that's what keeps me up at night. Is like, can I can I be part of a solution to keep the successes that a lot of people have taken risk and putting time and money and energy and effort into building? Can we create that bridge to allow those successes uh, to keep going? A personal flaw that you're working on still? A personal flaw that I'm working on still is saying no faster and more often, Mm. you know, and just just really making sure that I'm not taking on more than I should. Even because just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Biggest insecurity. Not living up to my potential. And final one for your kids. Um, What are the principles that you want them to live by? Maybe one or two. I think um, be nice to their siblings. Uh, (laughs) Don't be last. Listen to your mother. (laughs) Very good. Top three. I love it. And with that, Olin Douglas, (laughs) thank you so much for this wide-ranging conversation. Um, We got deep. We got personal. Touched on so many elements that I wish we could spend hours on. But we will continue. And we will hopefully uh, come back with part two when you're ready with what next. Very good. But thank you, Olin, for all that you're doing. And keep making billion dollar moves. Thank you, Sarah. It was wonderful talking with you. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.